This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, I want to apologize to you guys. Uh, last weekend was Father's Day, and we never mentioned it on the show. No, not once. So a belated Father's Day to you, and I don't know what you did for the weekend, Ron, but I do know what the Goose Man did, and frankly, I'm jealous. Goose, you want to tell our listeners how you spent Father's Day weekend? Because yes, it was with a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I was with 45,000 of my closest friends in Arlington to see Paul McCartney in concert. The guy is 77. He played almost three hours straight, and he weaved in some his Tales from the Road with the songs. He was terrific, as you'd expect. And he brought down the house with Live and Let Die. Wow. Thank you, a light and fireworks show. I don't go to many concerts, but this one was a must-see. Yeah, I go to many concerts. I haven't seen him. I would love to see him. Okay, Ronnie, that, that's going to be a tough one to top, but try, because I learned long ago never to <laughs> underestimate you. <laughs> Can't talk the goose, man. Uh, but uh, I, was, I was having my own, uh, taking flight with my own wings, going to play some golf with my 12-year-old boy, Jack. Great time. Great day. Chasing balls all over the place, eating peanut butter crackers in the cart, drinking some Gatorade. <laughs> What's better than that? Is he as good on the links as he is on the ice, Ronnie? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you what. I had a good weekend because my wife gave me the closest thing to the Bible that there is out there. And that's an autobiography by Todd Rundgren called The Individualist. I've seen this year's Individualist Tour. Now I get to read the book. And, guys, it doesn't get much better than that. Nevertheless, yep, we're going to try today with former Cincinnati Bengals standout Ken Riley, former Denver PR chief Jim Sacamano on the passing of Pat Boland, and NFL story John Turney, our old friend on the expanded continent, the Centennial class, Continental class as well, Centennial class for 2020. And I'll tell you what, guys, um, my first thought when I heard about Pat's death, I was glad we got him into Kent before he passed away. But my second, of course, was what a shame it was for him and his family that he couldn't experience it. Yeah, even if he was there this August, I'm not sure he did experience it. You know, we were about five years late allowing him to experience it. Yeah, it's you know it's, it's it's sad, obviously in a way, but at least uh, you know he'll always be remembered there in the in the uh, home of pro football in Canton, Ohio, and his his family can always go back and and, and point and say, there he is. Guy yep, that's right. Well, uh, we're going to hear more on the passing of Pat Bowen and the mini controversy Hall now finds itself in later in the show. But first, yeah, first we're going to break. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We want to send out our congratulations to quarterback and friend of the show, Josh McCown, who this week announced his retirement from the NFL after 16 seasons. Now, we had Josh on the program last week, and after we finished, we were all sitting around going, God, what a terrific interview he was, and he was. Well, apparently, we're not alone in that segment. He's been hired as an analyst by ESPN Goose for the coming season. Yeah, he's also got terrific insight into the game. You know, in his 16-year career as a backup quarterback, he was the extra set of eyes for so many starting quarterbacks. And I think his mentorship put Sam Darnold on the right track and starting quarterback suggests he'll make a terrific TV analyst. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. And you know something, Ron? It's rare when you have someone like this, a journeyman quarterback, that when he retires, immediately the beat guys, the guys who covered him, they can't wait to line up to tell the world what a great guy this guy is. I mean, ESPN's Rich Samini, friend of the show, did it. The Post, Brian Costello did it. I mean, anyone who covered Josh McCown chimed in, and they all said the same thing. The guy was a reporter's dream. There to help and always be accountable, no matter if he won or if he lost. Yeah, I think you can certainly tell from uh, from our interview with him last week the kind of guy he is. He's proud of his long career, as he should be, but uh, self-deprecating, uh, well aware of a world larger than the huddle. And by the way, uh, I think he announced his retirement really on our show first. Scoop. He did. Talk of Fame Network. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know what? Because of that, because he's such a good guy, Goose, I'd like to make a nomination, an early one, for next year's Pro Football Writers Good Guy Award. Clark, I've known Josh since his days at SMU some 18 years. Uh, he'd have been the captain of my good guy team every year. Well, I was going to nominate Ron, but no, it's going to be Josh, Ron. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, no, I'm the captain of the hard guy, which is a little bit different. <laughs> Same church, different people. Uh, but, uh, you know, difficult to imagine someone uh, more deserving. Like he's a guy, you, uh, as all of these beat writers have pointed out, you can always turn to him, talk to him about the game, his team, any situation, good or bad, and get a reasoned and, and reflective response. Uh, uh, in the grand scheme of the larger world, uh, we should point out also, by the way, Josh McCown was a great quarterback. If you look at the larger world, this guy's, you know, how many quarterbacks were ever played are better than him? Not a, not a lot if you're talking about everybody in the world who ever played quarterback, which is what right, I'm talking right. about. Okay, right. so you know you get to the highest level and you're quote unquote a backup. That just means you you're one of the seventy or eighty best throwers of a football in the country. Yeah, no, that's right. Pretty good. Right. Yeah, no, it's pretty good. And congratulations, by the way, to Josh McCowan on his retirement. And best of luck in his new career. Ron, a last question for you. Uh, now that he's signed up with the worldwide leader, you still think he returns our calls? <laughs> there are guys about you whom you would immediately say, absolutely not. But I would say certainly so. That's the kind of fellow he is. A good one. Especially if he wants to win that good guy award. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Why well, don't someone who will return that call? And that's our Ronnie. Ron Borges with his twice monthly Borges or Bogus rant. And Ron, you get a pass. You do get a pass. We want to make this one about the Bruins because uh, they should have used your son Jack in that seventh game last week. Uh, he's good on the ice. Not so good on the links. I'm talking about Jack, but they could have used him. But I heard instead you're on the warpath about another area team. Uh, you want to tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, look. A longtime employee and director of football operations with the Patriots, Nick Casario, has worked for Bill Belichick and Bob Kraft for 19 years. He started out as a golfer, and he ended up as Belichick's right-hand man. He has coached for the man. He has scouted for the man. He has overseen personnel for the man. And early in his career, he used to go out to p for pizza for the man. Nick Casario has been as loyal as Lassie, so maybe that's why Belichick and Kraft are treating him like a dog. There has been a great exodus down at Camp Unhappy this offseason. A fleet of coaches left with blind Flores to join his staff in Miami. Team chaplain Jack Esterby left for expatriate assistant Billy O'Brien's staff in Houston. Who ever heard of a chaplain leaving? <laughs> but you know, let us. Not me. No, I mean, you know, look, now the Texans want to hire uh, Nick Cassero to be their general manager after firing Brian Ganey the day after the Patriots received their newest and gaudiest Super Bowl rings at Kraft's mansion in Chestnut Hill. By the way, they did not receive massages as well. Uh, but I digress. Among those in attendance was Esterby, uh, who came by to make sure he got his jewelry before it got lost in the mail. A day later, Houston fires Ganey and asked to interview Casario, who by all inside accounts wanted to leave. The 
Patriots, rather than honor the request of a nearly 20-year employee to let him leave a year before his contract ends, file tampering charges, and then invoke a clause in Casario's contract that allegedly bans him from interviewing for other jobs. This is the typical kind of bogus loophole-creating move that has so many in football hating on the Patriots. If this, if this role was reversed, Kraft would be claiming, that, co- that clause only covers me interviewing. I'm not interviewing. I'm taking the job. Now I'm going to lawyer up. Uh, it's the contractual version of Spygate, Deflategate, and Flygate, Bob Kraft's personal uh, bogus legal problems. Employees are supposed to be allowed to interview for GM jobs, which uh, this would have been in Houston, if they weren't, quote, primarily responsible for football operations in the place where they now work. Everyone in football knows who's responsible for football operations in New England, and that's Bill Belichick. It has been alleged, uh, and he's been convicted of also being in charge of spying operations, but not of deflationary operations. That belongs to Tom Brady and his minions. Now, did the Packers dynasty ever have all these kinds of issues raised about them? How about the Steelers in the 70s or the 49ers of the 80s? Did the Cowboys of the 90s constantly find their name involved in one nefarious sideshow after another? It would be bogus to to suggest they did. But the Patriots just can't seem to help themselves from acting like Lincoln never actually freed the slaves. They regularly force proven players to take pay cuts. They generally refuse to pay market value. They will cut you at any moment, even the night before the Super Bowl, as they did poor Tiquan Underwood on the eve of Super Bowl whatever that was, 46, and then they didn't give him a Super Bowl ring. They only gave him an AFC championship ring. Sorry, kid, you didn't make the game. Now they have a longtime employee he wants to leave after 19 years for a better job with more authority, and they invoke a contract clause they may be, that may be legal but certainly violates the spirit of the NFL rule. That's not bogus. That's the Patriot way. Bill Belichick became, became the Patriots' head coach in the first place by violating his contract with the Jets. There's little doubt in most people's minds that Bob Kraft and his minions tampered with him just as he was headed to become the H.C. of the NYJ. Somehow he ended up the H.C. of the NEP, although Kraft had to pay a ransom to get it done. Now, nearly 20 years and nine Super Bowl appearances later, Bob Kraft and Bill Belichick invoke a clause designed to once again create a loophole in how things are supposed to be done in the NFL. They'll get away with it because they know how to write airtight contracts. They'll just have one less loyal employee and one more guy who leaves a year from now, this time for Houston, with a bad taste in, in his mouth about how things ended. Ron, do you think the Patriots denied permission because it was Billy O'Brien and the Texans calling? What if it was like the Bengals or the Cardinals? Uh, you know, on the surface, I can see how people would think that, but I don't think so. I think this is just how they do business. You know, uh, they find every loophole they can. They spend a lot of time searching for them, uh, and they use them, and they use them, and they use them, and they use them. Now, you could sit there and say, well, Cicero should have known what he, uh, what he was signing. And, you know, that's the problem. A lot of these guys think, well, okay, but, you know, this is never going to be an issue until it becomes an issue. That's the Patriot way. Yeah, I, I'm going to sit here and say, well... Casario should have known what he was doing. I mean, you said yourself, Ron, it's an airtight contract. I mean, to me, a contract's a contract. He signed it. I don't know what the complaint is, whether he's unhappy. The, the Oakland A's in the 1970s weren't happy. All they did was win. All these guys do is win. They must be doing something right. Well, you know, just because you're winning doesn't mean you're happy. That's the, that's the great flaw uh, in the thinking about uh, not only this, but a lot of other things in, in our country these days. Just because you're winning it doesn't mean how you're doing it makes you feel that good. And for a lot of these guys, it's pretty clear it doesn't, but they don't say it until they leave. And a guy like Nick Casario, look, he's been a loyal employee for 20 years. He wants to leave, 
Let him go. I mean, you really think that this guy is the key guy? To, boy, without him, we're we're you know we're down uh, going over the falls without a paddle. I mean, let him, the guy wants to go. Let him go. He's done nothing but work hard for you for twenty years. He's got an opportunity. He thinks it's a better opportunity. Why can't you just let him go? The draft is over. Let him go. I don't get it. Hey, Ron, do you think Notre Dame wishes the Patriots would have stepped in when they gave Charlie Weiss that contract? Well, if you notice, that, that, that's just it. When Belichick knows the guy's a nitwit, he, see, he helps him pack. <laughs> Didn't stand in Scott Pioli's way, and what did he do? <laughs> I said, sorry, Charlie. Anyway, we're going to stop right there. When we return, we'll look at the expanded Centennial class for 2020 and what it means for seniors who have been waiting on the hall for decades. A lot of them. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, a week ago we had Joe Horrigan, who's the former executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He was at, well, he was with the Hall of Fame for 42 years. And he was on this program, and he told us that the idea of an expanded centennial class for 2020, which would be the year the NFL's 100th anniversary is celebrated, that it's, quote-unquote, going to happen, unquote. Well, apparently the Hall signed off on the idea, though it really hasn't signed off, not officially, on the details yet. Now, I've heard all sorts of numbers, Ron, so have you, all in the double digits, and it really doesn't matter how many there are going to be. The fact of the matter is that the Hall recognizes a problem that it's got, and that problem is it has too many, too many seniors, coaches and contributors out there, especially seniors, who are qualified for induction, but who have never had their names called. And to me, that's a step forward. And not just a step, to me, it's more like a giant leap, I'd say, Ron. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I know there's a lot of discussion and speculation that uh, in the end they'll go with 17, which is, of course, the size of the original uh, uh, class in 1963, and that's fine. Uh, but we could use a lot more than that. I mean, you know, we yep. We got a lot more than 17 people drowning in the great abyss, as I call it, out there in the senior uh, committee. And uh, but anything they're doing is a, is a uh, step up. Uh, I know out there, you know, they're always, as with any business, they're always worried about costs. So I imagine there'll be a lot of uh, posthumous inductions. <laughs> but sure. you know, there's a number of yeah. those guys that uh, that are certainly uh, long past the time that they uh, should have gotten their due, and and uh, hopefully they'll do the right thing and get in as many. Uh, deserving players and coaches as we can. Yeah, no, that's what I'd hope for as well. And, and to me, as I said, that's not just good news. It's great news. And before we go further, I'll just ask you, because you're the guy that turns things inside out and looks at it from all directions, any concerns or downside with this announcement, at least from your perspective? No, I really don't think so. It's, I mean, it is, assuming they do it right, uh, as yep. they usually do. Uh, you know, you look, you know there's going to be critics. There's going to be some... Twitter nitwit saying these guys climbed into the back window or something, or there's some guy on TV beating his chest, you know. Uh, but look, uh, we all know there's more uh, deserving players uh, than there are uh, seats and that there are busts in, in, in Canton, quite frankly. Uh, you know, and my understanding is that uh, when they do this, it's going to be a, a separate induction uh, for, the, for the centennial class sometime in September of the, uh, that year. Uh, which would be a cool way to me to give it, give them all their own day. You know, most of these mm-hmm. guys will have been people who waited long, long, long enough. They deserve their own day, not get lost in the shuffle of uh, modern-day uh, or present-day inductees. 
Um, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, the original class was uh, made up of 17 total, which was uh, 11 players, four contributors, and two coaches. Uh, if they're going to go with that number, my, my first suggestion would be 17 players, and my next would be uh, 15 players and in, in, in two coaches. Um, I don't really think we need – I mean, there's some contributors that certainly uh, have a right to be in there. Um, but I'm really thinking that this is an opportunity to really clean up a backlog, primarily of players. And let's be honest about it. Uh, pro football is a player's game. Uh, right, right, it's about right. the players. And, you know, if they do have a separate induction, and I think they will, in fact, I'm almost certain they will, to me, it's not only the right thing, it's the practical thing. Because if you put them on the same stage with the others, you're going to have a, a, a six- or seven-hour-long ceremony, and that, that just ain't going to fly. No, no, you're exactly right. And if they do it right, you know, they... They're all about the TV show. They get two TV shows out of it, you know. So, yeah, right, right. Uh, and, and, um, well, Ronnie, you and, and Goose are on the senior committee. Do you have any idea if you'll have a voice in choosing these candidates or how they will be chosen? Um, I think we're going to have a voice. Um, um, but my understanding is uh, all the voters will have a choice. At least one of the big ideas that they're kicking around, and I think it's a wise one, is that uh, a group of us, uh, from the senior committee and perhaps some of the other subcommittees like the contributors committee that you're on. Uh, we make the, the selections and then they're presented as one slate to the full 48 voters and you wrote up or down on the slate, not individually. And, and okay. I think that that's wise for a couple of reasons. Uh, one being that it was uh, hopefully eliminate the potential, uh, uh, potentially unwise idea uh, on the one hand of somebody decide, well, I'm going to vote down player X. Uh, you know, these guys have waited many, many years. And on the flip side, I think it will hopefully preclude uh, some of the minions in the NFL who have certain uh, executives that they want to get in uh, from putting them on this list because they could easily blow the whole list if, uh, mm-hmm. right. if they do that. Right. Hopefully they won't. Well, well, Ron, let's just say that you are on the committee that chooses these guys, that you are on this committee. Yeah. Who would be your first choice? Uh, that's easy for me. It's uh, it's uh, Duke Slater, without question. Uh, uh, to me, in many ways, he was a Jackie Robinson of po- pro football. He was certainly the finest African-American football player in the first half of the 20th century. He's one of the NFL's best two-way linemen in uh, the infant years of the league. And just as significantly, he was a pioneer in pro footballs uh, 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 in the years between 1922 and 1931 when there were very few black players. He was the NFL's first African-American lineman. He joined the Rock Island Independence in 1922 after being a two-time All-American at Iowa. Uh, and his rise was very unlikely, Kirk, because uh, not because of racism, although that was a problem. The bigger problem was his father, who was a Methodist minister and forbade him to play football when they moved to Clinton, Iowa from Chicago. And Duke Slater was 13 at the time, and he obeyed his freshman year, but he got sneaky his sophomore year and was playing. And then his father noticed his mother stitching up a pair of football pants and said, you know, what's going on here? And uh, so he forbade him again, and his son went on a hunger strike for several days, which finally uh, convinced his dad to uh, uh, to relent, and that was a great thing. Uh, but here was his other problem. Uh, he couldn't afford to pay for both a helmet and shoes, which all the players had to provide for themselves. So he told his son, well, you got to pick. So his son said, uh, I'll take the shoes. And so he played without a helmet through high school and most of his college career at, at Iowa. And he was a great college player. He was in the inaugural class of the College Football Hall of Fame in 1951 induction. Uh, he later became an attorney and a municipal court judge. 
uh, in Chicago. But in the interim, between those two things, he played 10 years in what was then the NFL's hard scrabble infancy for the Milwaukee Badgers and Rock Island Independent and finally Chicago uh, Cardinals before he retired after the 31 season. But he was not only the first African-American lineman uh, in NFL history, uh, but he was one of the best because anything else would have blocked him from playing. He never missed a game because of injury. He started 96 of 99 games he played. He was all pro six times in 10 years. Uh, and when he, uh, uh, when he finally retired, he ranked third for longevity in NFL history, uh, which shows how it was in those days. Uh, and those 96 starts were fourth all time. The only start he missed was because racism prevented him from playing. They were going to play the Kansas City Blues, and there was a city ordinance that no African-Americans could play in Missouri against white uh, folk. So that's the one game he missed. Unfortunately for the Kansas City Blues, they later had to go back to Rock Island uh, to play against Duke Slater, and he pounded them senseless. They won 17 to nothing in, in that rematch. Uh, he also was the only African-American player in the NFL between 1927 and 1929. Uh, and uh, the reason for that was there was a sort of... Uh, there was an unofficial ban on black players, they had decided. Uh, but this guy was so good that uh, they finally, the owners finally said, well, you know, looking at him, I think he's really more of an Indian. <laughs> so he became an Indian, which is how he continued to play. I mean, you got to be a ball player. you got to be balling to have that happen. Uh, uh, but, you know, he just was a good, uh, he was a tremendous player. He was a Hall yeah. of Fame finalist twice in 1970 and 1971, and then disappeared and has never been back, which is yeah. head scratch. Well, I'd, I'd have no problem with Duke Slater, and I know Joe Horgan would either. He's been on this program twice promoting Duke Slater as his first choice, but I'd consider now Worcester, too, and the Eagles out Worcester, uh, nine years in the league, eight all-pro choices, all-decade, two league championships. I'm not sure how they the voters missed on him, but they did. And it just seems like these guys are representative of way too many. They're just way too many guys who aren't in here. And um, so, Ron, I guess what I'd like you to do is expand that list beyond Duke Slater to your top three in no discernible order. Now, we know Duke Slater is first, I guess, but um, right. who would your top three candidates be? And they can include uh, coaches and or contributors, but I assume they're going to all be th players. Well, you know, it's tough because there are so many guys. You know, Alex Karras, I'd love to see him in there. You know, there's so many guys. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I tend to go in the way back machine because I think those guys really got forgotten. And there's two guys other than Duke that come to mind. One is Clark Shaughnessy, who, the coach who invented the T formation uh, for George Hallis and then uh, left uh, and got hired back. He went to coaching college. He got hired back several years later by George Hallis to come up with a defense to stop the T formation. So I'm creating the offense, and I'm going to create the defense to stop the offense. Uh, he, he briefly was a head coach in Los Angeles, was very successful, uh, but apparently was uh, so difficult to get along with that the owner said, I'd rather lose with somebody else and win with him, and he got fired. Uh, <laughs> but tremendous, tremendous, not only tremendous coach in terms of coaching uh, players, but uh, one of the most innovative minds really in the history of the game. Uh, and the other guy would be Cecil Isbell, uh, the great Green Bay Packer quarterback, uh, he's the only all-decade quarterback in any decade, uh, whether uh, eligible, who is not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I don't know who he pissed off, but, uh, but if you look up Don Hudson's greatest years, they right. began when Cecil Isabel was the quarterback, and they stopped when he stopped being the quarterback. Yeah, the numbers were off the charts. I mean, oh, for that era, the numbers yeah. were off the charts. He was like three um, four times better, more productive than the next guy. Ron, let me ask you something here because we have about a minute left. We have someone on this program today. In fact, he's going to join us shortly 
who's deserving of Canton, too, and that's former Bengals defensive back Ken Riley. Got 65 career interceptions, yet he's not in Canton either. He hasn't even been a semifinals. Where is he on your list? Top 5, top 10, 15, nowhere? Where is he? Well, he's certainly in the top 15. Uh, it might, you know, might be even less than that. Uh, you know, those, six, those 65 picks are unbelievable. Uh, for him to gone that, go that long and, and no one knows him, what was even more uh, remarkable to me, Clark, is that he was a four-time All-Pro player who never made the Pro Bowl. Yeah, uh, which is like, <laughs> God, what's what? up with that? You know, so it just sort of shows you that he was he was in in Cincinnati, which was like being an Alcatraz uh, in, in those days. You know, had they won a couple of Super Bowls uh, when Kenny was playing, would have made a difference probably, but they didn't. Well, guess what? We're going to hear what Ken Riley thinks about all this and about his Hall of Fame candidacy when we return from break. That's not going to be in too far in the future. In fact, it's coming up right now. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I'll be honest, I can't wait to hear from our next guest, because it's former Cincinnati Bengals DB Ken Riley. Now, you heard us talk about him a few minutes ago, and there's a good reason. With 65 career interceptions, Kenny is fifth on the all-time NFL list, yet he's not, and I say not, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But worse, he's never been a finalist or a semifinalist. However, the four guys ahead of him on that list, yeah, they're all in the hall. And so are the two behind him who are eligible. So what is the deal? Well, that's a question, and it's a great question. And, Ken, maybe we'll start right there. I'll start by asking you, are you perplexed? Frustrated, annoyed, whatever, that the, with the numbers you put up and the career that you've had, you haven't even been a Hall of Fame semifinalist. Who did you tick off? <laughs> well, I, you can't get upset, but, uh, you know, only time that really bothers me when I get so many people, former coaches, former professional football players, and they ask the same question, what is wrong? What did you do to anybody? I said, I never did anything. The only thing I did was play to the best of my ability and, uh, and did my job. Uh, I uh, I guess I was too modest, too humble. I mean, even to the point with being, you know, playing in the Pro Bowl, that, that was very perfecting as well. Uh, right. I remember one year in 1976, I had nine interceptions. Charlie Winters was my coach. We played the Jets. Joe Namath's last game picked off three passes, two of them off Joe Willie, and I uh, didn't play the fourth quarter because uh, Charlie said, we don't make sure you get hurt. If you don't get it this time, what's going on? So I, <laughs> so that gets through my career. I've always been modest. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I've had three interceptions in three games. I mean, uh, in one game, I don't know, three times. I mean, I've done everything I'm supposed to do, so it's out of my control. Uh, you can't worry about it, and just hopefully maybe one day. It's about a lot of other people out there, but when you you look at your stats, you look at the people in front of you, and, and being a pure cone, that's all I ever played. And then I played the position because I was a quarterback throughout my career. I right. learned the position very well. You know, uh, Tom Bass showed me the basics. I worked on it. I took my luck up and down, but even then I held on and, and never played the position before. So... Uh, you know, I'm thrilled about it. You know, just having an opportunity. And when I finished, I was fourth all the time. And now I'm still fifth. So, you know, but it, it's perplexing. But at the same token, it's out of my control. Well, you don't have to convince us. We've been in your corner for years. And I, I'm just wondering, if you had to make your case 
to other voters today? Um, if you had to make your case to the 45 other voters other than the three of us, what would you tell them? What would you tell them to try to convince them that you're missing something about me, guys? <laughs> well, you know, that's, 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 that's a good question, but it's a hard question because I can't, I'm not in the mind there, but a lot of people that uh, reporters and writers that during my era, a lot of them are retired and gone, and even back then, you know, I didn't get my just due. But uh, I would just say, look at the stats. And I mean, 65 career inception. And I mean, even they thought they were picking them up, which they were not. I just, I learned the position and played it well. I used my smarts and uh, learned from other great cornerbacks and uh, took my book notes and, and, and everything. So uh, my record speaks for itself. It's just a matter of whether or not, you know, someone just give, you know, take that chance and I say take that chance to do the right thing so like I said you know I'm not bitter but you know it, it is perplexing when you look at some of the guys even behind me you don't have the, the number that I have on their end now this is good enough to get you in <laughs> I, I you know I aspired to get 83 I probably should have played my, another two years but I went on and coached with uh, the Green Bay Packers far as Coach Greg wanted me to play even when I was at Green Bay so but uh, just look at my numbers, look at what I've accomplished over the past years, and hopefully uh, we make the right decision. Give me that opportunity. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting, Ken, that you mentioned Forrest Gregg because his wife uh, recently said that Forrest Gregg uh, uh, used to tell him that one of the things he hoped to, to do and really wanted to do was to be around when you got inducted to the Hall of Fame and how he's written letters in the past on your behalf to, to the voters. Uh, how does that make you feel? Obviously, it can't it can't replace the bus in Canton, but how does that make you feel that a guy like Forrest Gregg would do that? Well, you know, he was a great mentor. When he first got there, we all were skeptical because we had heard all of the hot notes he was and all of that. But then when he came in, that was what the Bengals needed back in 81, and we needed discipline. We had a lot of young guys who needed somebody with a strong hand, and he came in and looked at it. He was, he was fair. He worked hard. Uh, working hard never was a trait that I didn't have. So, I mean, he came in, he was up front, and uh, he got the attention, got everybody's attention. We respected him, and the rest of the history went on, went on to the Super Bowl in two more years. Should have won, really, but that sure ain't good enough. But uh, I got a lot of respect for him. When I retired, I was home at Christmas. He called me and said, Ken, I'd like you to come and be my secondary coach. I said, well, you know, uh, Coach Brown said he had something in store for me, too. So I, I'm going to give him an opportunity to call him. So I called and I talked with uh, Coach Brown, and he said that, uh, yeah, we want to bring him in. He wants me to be a study to uh, Dick LeBeau. And uh, so I went back to Coach Greg, and he said, no, no, no. He said, you ready? No, we don't want you to do no. We want you to come in and coach our secondary. So that's just the kind of confidence he had in me. And we did very well my two years that I was there. Uh, we moved up and, and passed defense, and uh, I credit him with a lot of things. Great man, and I thank him for giving me the opportunity right out of retirement and going and being the secondary coach for the Green Bay Packers. So I don't have anything but high regard for him, and I was there this year, and with Paul Bear, and I talked with Bob, and he told me a chance to pick in. Bob, he really wants you to go in the Hall of Fame. He's the only guy he's ever written a letter for to go into the Hall of Fame. So that's, that's saying a lot. So... I really appreciate it, and he's going to be very, very much uh, missed. And I have to send him stuff every year by Christmas time. I send it to morning just from Florida. So. <laughs> and I continue to do that because they were great people. He and Bob great people. 
Hey, Ken, I, I want to go back to something you said earlier, and, and you mentioned something about the Pro Bowl. You were a four-time All-Pro. Yet yes. You were never chosen, not once, to the AFC Pro Bowl team. What was up with that? That is a mystery to me. Uh, in a way, I wanted to play just because so many other guys played, but at the same token, I didn't want to risk getting injured and bring me, you know, you never know. But now it's really watered down now. But uh, there's some guys that got hurt, but that, that, that I don't understand that either. You know, and some people are holding that against it. It's the way he's never been in the Pro Bowl. I mean, played in the Pro Bowl. Uh, there are a lot of people who back then went off their reputation. And uh, regardless of what you did, there's some other guys that had some great individual uh, years and, and didn't get a chance to play in the Pro Bowl. But uh, that's the mystery. Uh, again, uh, that's out of my control. And like I said, the only thing I can do is each Sunday go out and be consistent. And I was consistent every Sunday on, on when I played football. And I played in more games than anybody in Cincinnati. I was very doable. 200, I don't know how many uh, games, but uh, very doable. Great career, and I'm appreciative to Paul Brown, Mike, and all of them giving the opportunity because, like I said, I was a quarterback and was drafted in the sixth round out of 17. I was surprised, so he thought, uh, I, I still think I could chance a decent quarterback as well, but I'm just glad I took advantage of the great opportunity and did well with it. Well, you know, Ken, uh, the fact that you didn't make those Pro Bowls just proves to you that players and coaches who pick those teams can be just as stupid as us writers who are both in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, uh, you know, the Bengals have had, I believe, in the last, uh, uh, been in the league for 50 years, they have one Hall of Fame representative, Anthony Munoz. Uh, how do you explain only one Bengal? And I mean, you've been to twice as many Super Bowls as you have Hall of Famers. How do you explain that? I can't explain it. I, I know that uh, I think Ken Anderson is deserving as well. You know, we have some other guys that have uh, played a great career. Guys that crazy. You don't hear anything about him. And, uh, you got some other guys coming up. Uh, Boomer, Sykes, and Chris Collins had a good career. But Boomer, uh, 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 Anthony is the only one in right now. So, uh, you know, I've heard a whole lot of reports here with the market we were in and everything that, well, nobody really push you like some of the other uh, teams uh, managed to push them but uh, that's something that again it's out of your control and uh, but it, it is perplexed but we've had some I don't know how many times we've been in the play we went to the playoffs my second year uh, I came in 69 in 1970 and we played uh, Baltimore Colts and that was a thrill for me because Johnny United was my idol and they went on and won the Super Bowl that year so I think we've been in the playoffs I don't know four or five times and Went into Super Bowl one and uh, uh, did well. Uh, should have, I guess, they should ain't good enough. But uh, I just don't. I can't answer that question. But uh, I think we are. We have several guys that are deserving, and hopefully uh, one day we'll get in. I'm 71 now. I think Kenny might be 70, so I'm going on 72. So if it happened, that'd be great. But uh, just like Jerry Kramer, I mean, he's 87 years old before he got in that. But uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully things will get better. And some, and it's just a backlog too. It's a whole lot of people that I think are deserving, but you get lost in the shuffle after one year. Then the next year you get further and further. You get other people coming out, so you push even further uh, back. So. You know, if you get there, you, you're blessed, and you're deserving of it, you're blessed, and you get that opportunity to be even better. So, hopefully, maybe one day with uh, yeah, E.J. Green is having a super uh, career, and maybe he might be the next guy, whoever. But hopefully, you know, there will be more bringers than in the future. 
It's funny, you, know, you mentioned the backlog, and, and the Hall is sort of acknowledging that to a little bit. They're talking about an expanded centennial class in 2020 uh, that uh, might uh, allow in as many as you know, 17 guys because that was the size of the original class um, and, and was basically designed for guys like yourself that have been somehow overlooked or forgotten. Um, how would you? How do you respond to that idea? And uh, uh, would you be well satisfied uh, if that's in the end how you got into the Hall of Fame? Well, I, I think it's, it's so many people that have been, like I said, lost and uh, shuffle and are deserving. And it's a backlog. It's, I'm not the only one. I don't really complain, but like I said, there are a lot of people pushing for me who feel like they am deserving. And in order to uh, sort of uh, make up for, not make up for, but make it fair to some of those people who have been there for a long time. I mean, I've been out, I don't know what, 20-some years or some people longer than that, 30, 35, 40. So uh, it would be great if that should happen. And uh, if it does happen, I'm just hoping that I might be one of the ones in that number that should be lost in the show. You know, you mentioned earlier, uh, of course, that you were the last guy to intercept Joe Namath. Uh, I believe it was twice in that, yeah, in that game. That's right. Uh, what you do with the footballs? Did you keep them? Uh, and uh, you, know, you know, I was uh, Joe was at the uh, Black College Hall of Fame this past year, and I was there. I went in in 2015, and we were standing there talking because he represented. I think Emerson Boomer uh, uh, couldn't could make it, so he he was he filled in for me. We were talking. I said, Joe, you remember the last game up there in New York? I said I picked off three. And I say two of them was off your last. He just thought, no, it wasn't none of me. I said, go back and look at the record. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ken, we've got less than a minute left. Okay, quick question for you. You mentioned Ken yeah, Anderson. Okay. Okay, Ken Anderson, yeah. should he be in the Hall of Fame as well? And why? I think Kenny deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, yeah, he, his numbers speak for himself. I think he's the most valuable player. Uh, I heard people say, well, because we didn't win the Super Bowl that year, but other people who didn't get to the Super Bowl and it's in the Hall of Fame. So I think that should be held against him. But, yeah, he's deserving as well. Definitely. Well, I hope we get two Kens in the Hall of Fame. And, Kenny, thanks so much. We're out of time. But great spending time with you. And you know what? Honestly, I hope we see you in Canton very soon. I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. You got it. That was former Bengals defensive back Ken Riley. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're almost at the first turn, so you know what's next. That's the two-minute warning. That's right, it's the two-minute drill. Guess what? I've got it this week. So, guys, let's get started. O.J. Simpson just discovered Twitter. Now what? Facebook. <laughs> a whole lot of wasted typing by a whole lot of wasted nitwits. <laughs> Former Chicago coach John Fox. Yeah, Foxy said the Bears had the worst offseason in the NFL. Does that mean no more freebies at Ditka's? Sounds like a dis- disgruntled former coach to me. <laughs> Yeah, what it means is his hurt feelings are showing instead of his slip. <laughs> Todd Gurley's trainers say there is, quote, an arthritic component, unquote, to Todd's knee. So who's my number one fantasy football pick this year? Ezekiel Elliott. Wrong. Leonard Fournette, bounce back season. <laughs> I didn't listen to you last year. I'm not listening to you this year, Ron. Hey, why aren't the Texans hiring a GM? Unofficially, it's going to be Bill O'Brien. 
Yeah, and officially they got one. He just won't be there until next May. Yeah. So when are they going to interview our Dr. Data? Dr. Data is too busy writing state your cases to interview with any NFL teams these days. <laughs> uh, knowing the Texans to never, but that's their mistake, not the goose man's. When Aaron Rodgers says he wants more freedom at the line of scrimmage, what does he mean? It means Mike McCarthy wouldn't give it to him. It means I throw, you coach, someplace else. <laughs> exactly. Which Raider gets his own show from the Hard Knock series? Rookie receiver Hunter Renfrew. He shined on the big stage at Clemson. He'll shine on the little training camp stage for the Raiders. Head coach John Gruden, because if he has another year like he's had recently, he'll need a place to work. <laughs> <laughs> Former Bengals coach Marvin Lewis says he may not watch NFL games this year. Why? It's easier to get Sunday afternoon tea times in Phoenix. Because those games are as boring to him as they are to the three of us. Not playing football. Michael Irvin says it's a no-brainer to pay Dak Prescott. So what do you pay him? Going right for a starting quarterback. $130 million. I don't pay him. I, I, move, I wait and watch and see what he does. Then maybe I pay him and maybe I don't. That's the end of the the end of our first hour, so maybe you should wait and watch and stay where you are. We have more on the Halls Expanded Centennial Class and Pat Bowen in the second 60 minutes. So don't budge. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron, and we'll be joined shortly by former Denver Broncos PR chief Jim Sacamano to talk about the legacy of former owner Pat Bolin, who died late last week and was honored at the Broncos Stadium at Mile High on Tuesday with a huge, and I mean huge, public turnout. But before we do, I want to recognize some of the noteworthy events taking place the rest of this week or have taken place this week. Paul McCartney is, was mentioned earlier by Goose. He had a birthday on Wednesday. He turned 77. Oh, can't be possible. He's catching up to you, Ron. Uh, Todd Rundgren, he has a birthday on Saturday. He turns 71. The NBA draft is Thursday. The College Baseball World Series this week. Summer officially arrives on Saturday. What a busy week. And then, well, yeah, Ron, yes, there's the anniversary of the fabled L.A. Bronco chase with O.J. Simpson, which happened 25 years ago Monday. Where were you, Ron? Where were you that day? Well, it's very funny because I can remember exactly where I was. I was in a hotel room in Boston writing about a fight, uh, and I was in that room because there was no uh, connections at ringside to allow me to send my story. So I, uh, at the time, I went up, hustled upstairs to find a room in this hotel next to the convention center. Uh, I had no idea what was going on, so I run in the room, I flip on the TV as I'm connecting, and there's uh, OJ in the white Bronco <laughs> going up the through the freeway. Yeah. And it was pretty difficult to write a story uh, and uh, not just keep your eye on that Bronco as it moved. Yeah, what do you remember most about that day? Well, I'll tell you, it's the other thing. It's funny the stuff that sticks in your mind. I'll never forget these frantic words from Al Cowlings, uh, OJ's boyhood friend uh, and longtime professional player, on his cell phone to the cops. Supposedly, yeah. by the way, little-known fact, A.J. Uh, Collins has told uh, people with whom we are both associated that one of the reasons it took so long, true story, O.J. was listening to the NBA playoff game and wanted to get to the end, to listen to the end of the game before he had to turn himself in. True story. Well, he was a lucky guy. And you know what, Ron? We're lucky guys, too, because when we return... 
We're going to hear why a Packers linebacker is a Hall of Fame. Why he should be in the Hall of Fame. Why he's Hall of Fame worthy. The Goose Man's going to tell us why. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron, and we'll be joined shortly by former Denver Broncos PR chief Jim Sacamano to talk about the legacy of former owner Pat Boland, who died late last week and was honored at the Broncos Stadium at Mile High on Tuesday with a huge, and I mean huge, public turnout. But before we do, I want to recognize some of the noteworthy events taking place the rest of this week or have taken place this week. Paul McCartney is, was mentioned earlier by Goose. He had a birthday on Wednesday. He turned 77. Oh, can't be possible. He's catching up to you, Ron. Uh, Todd Rundgren, he has a birthday on Saturday. He turns 71. The NBA draft is Thursday. The College Baseball World Series this week. Summer officially arrives on Saturday. What a busy week. And then, well, yeah, Ron, yes, there's the anniversary of the fabled L.A. Bronco chase with O.J. Simpson, which happened 25 years ago Monday. Where were you, Ron? Where were you that day? Well, it's very funny because I can remember exactly where I was. I was in a hotel room in Boston writing about a fight, uh, and I was in that room because there was no uh, connections at ringside to allow me to send my story. So I, uh, at the time, I went up, hustled upstairs to find a room in this hotel next to the convention center. Uh, I had no idea what was going on, so I run in the room. I flip on the TV as I'm connecting, and there's uh, O.J., in the white Bronco going up the through the freeway, and it was pretty difficult to write a story uh, and uh, not just keep your eye on that Bronco as it moved. Yeah, what do you remember most about that day? Well, I tell you, it's the other thing. It's funny the stuff that sticks in your mind. I'll never forget these frantic words from Al Cowlings, uh, OJ's boyhood friend uh, and longtime professional player, on his cell phone to the cops. Supposedly, yeah. by the way, little known fact, AJ uh, Collins has told uh, people with whom we are both associated that one of the reasons it took so long, true story, OJ was listening to the NBA playoff game and wanted to get to the end, uh, listen to the end of the game before he had to turn himself in. True story. Well, he was a lucky guy. And you know what, Ron? We're lucky guys, too, because when we return. We're going to hear why a Packers linebacker is a Hall of Fame. Why he should be in the Hall of Fame. Why he's Hall of Fame worthy. The Goose Man's going to tell us why. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I know we're going to talk more about Pat Bowen and his legacy when we sit down in about, uh, about 15 minutes with former Broncos PR director Jim Sacomano. But before we do, I, I want to ask you guys about an issue that arose in the wake of Pat's death, and, and that's this. The Pro Football Hall of Fame has a rule that gold jackets and rings are reserved only for living members of the hall. Okay? I don't care if you like it or not, but that's the rule. Just the rule. But Pat Bolin is the first inductee to pass away between getting voted in, which he was in February, and his induction, which takes place in August. And so now, well, now people in Denver aren't real happy because they believe the rules should either be waived or changed because they also believe Pat's family should have both the ring and the jacket. The hall, meanwhile, has said it's going to review the rule, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure what that means. So I'll just cut to the chase and ask you guys. If you were on the hall's board of directors, Goose, I'll start with you. What would you do here? Give the family the ring and the jacket. It's the right thing to do. 
Bolin was living with the Hall and obviously he was a Hall of Famer that entitles him and his family to any and all perks. Look, give them to the living, give them to the dead, give them to the anybody. I mean, how much are you saving? It makes not a bit of sense. Uh, right. The family gets them eventually anyway. I mean, after they die, they have to give the stuff back? No. Yeah, right. I mean, right. come on. What are they talking about? Yeah, I mean, my wife said the same thing. She goes, come on, these jackets. I mean, how much of those cost you? I mean, come on. But, you know, it's an issue, Ron, that's come up before. I remember, for instance, remember the acceptance speech that Junior Seau's daughter wanted to deliver? And, and she right. finally did. But she had to go through all sorts of red tape before she could. Um, is there something bigger at work here? And I think you alluded to it here. I mean, something like the Hall just must make broader changes for all inductees who are DCs, all of them. Yeah, I don't think there's anything broader. I think it's, there's just a bad policy here. Uh, I think they should not make it uh, larger than it is. Um, you know, treat everyone the same, as Goose said. And I bet the hall won't have any trouble, uh, you know, asking the Bolin family for some memorabilia to add to the hall, which they get from almost all their inductees. Look, just sure do the right thing. Yeah, just do the right thing and, and, and move on. It's only a big issue if they are too stubborn to change it. Yeah, I would agree. This is this is nuts. I think the NFL should investigate this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's hope Ted Wells is not on the case, Goose, man. Hey, in the end here, yeah. what do you think happens, Goose? What do you think happens here? No jacket, no ring. Jeez. Really? Ron, I, I hope you're wrong, Goose. Ron, what do you think happens? Wow. To that I say, as the great Gene Upshaw once said, no freedom, no football. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, come on, what the hell are they talking about? God almighty. But yeah. I'll tell you, great Burt Bell, you know, he was in in that, in that first uh, class, you know, the inaugural class. His family didn't get a ring. Upton yeah, still well, complains about it. <laughs> Ron, all I know is that whatever happens, the Talk of Theme Network will be there to cover. Yep, there in Canton to cover maybe no jacket, no ring. Well, there's a signal that we're going to hear about someone else who might belong in Canton, and that someone is former Green Bay linebacker John Anderson, whom our Rick Gosselin wrote about this week on our website, and that website is talkoffamenetwork.com or the Maven slash Talk of Fame Network. And, Goose, I voted for John Anderson in the 1980 presidential election. I did, because Todd Rundgren actually played a, a benefit for him. I, this isn't the same guy, is it? No, sir. Football has always been a game of blocking and tackling until 1982. Then it became a game of blocking and sacking. That's when the NFL officially recognized sacks as a stat. In so doing, the position outside linebacker evolved into edge rusher. More and more teams moved to a 3-4 defensive scheme to free up that speed off the edge. And by 1985, 23 of the 28 NFL teams were lining up in a 3-4. Lawrence Taylor was busy reinventing the weak side linebacker spot in New York in the 1980s. And Hall of Famers Robert Brazil, Charles Haley, and Derek Thomas also making names for themselves. As those edge rushers grew in stature, collecting the Pro Bowl invitations, the standing of the pure outside linebackers on the football field diminished, which explains how John Anderson and Carl Banks were forgotten by the Hall of Fame selection committee. Anderson and Banks played a traditional left outside linebacker in the 1980s over the strong side. Now, the NFL historically has focused their rushing attacks to that side because of the extra blocker at tight end. So Anderson and Banks were asked to make plays on their side of the line of scrimmage, not just the offensive backfield. They were charged with stopping the run and covering tight ends and running backs in the passing game. So the strength of their games was the ability to tackle, not sack. Anderson and Banks were selected to the 1980s NFL All-Decade team, but neither one has ever been a finalist for the Hall of Fame. Anderson's tackling ability has gone unnoticed. 
He collected a career-high 150 tackles in 1981, but there was no Pro Bowl as reward. He finished his 12-year career as a leading tackler in Green Bay history with more than 1,000. Again, no one noticed. There's no love for tacklers in the NFL anymore, just sackers. There's also little love for coverage backers, and Anderson intercepted 25 passes in his career. Only seven outside linebackers in NFL history intercepted more. He also recovered 15 fumbles, giving him 40 career takeaways. Only five outside backers in history came up with football more often. But it's the sacks that matter in the Hall of Fame discussion, not takeaways. And Anderson only collected 19 and a half sacks in his rare pass rush opportunities. The other issue in his candidacy is the lack of success by the Packers during the 1980s. Green Bay won only 43% of its games during his career, and Anderson played in only two playoff games, both in 1982. The 280 players with busts, 67% of them won championships. Of the 103 players enshrined in Canton who did not win a championship, only 37 played defense. Anderson is sitting on that double. His career is deserving of discussion by the Hall of Fame Selection Committee, and maybe he'll get it if tackling ever becomes vogue again in the NFL. Well, uh, bottom line, Gooseman, do you expect that either uh, Kyle Banks or John Anderson will someday be able to overcome uh, the absence of what has become the critical number for most linebackers, as you point out, sacks? Ron, a lack of sacks, Pro Bowls, and in Anderson's case, championship rings dooms him to perhaps the longest of long shots in the senior bowl. At least Banks has the championship, but I think these guys are both very long shots because they, they lack that key stat, which is sacks. Bruce, I'll tell you what, after listening to you, maybe I should have voted for this guy in the 1980 presidential election. Sounds like he's a pretty complete player. Um, This kind of sounds to me like the Ken Riley scenario that we talked about in the first hour. Um, You mentioned John Anderson and Carl Banks. They're all decade choices. Yet the two combined for, what, one Pro Bowl? I mean, what's up with that? I mean, why? Well, it's like the Pro Bowl voting at offensive tackle. Inevitably, the four best left tackles get voted in, and the right tackles get shut out and have to stay at home. An outside linebacker, the four best edge rushers get in, and the cover backers get left out. And I think that was the case with uh, Banks and Anderson. You know, the league had, had moved to the sack being such a dynamic play in the 1980s. They wanted guys who could make that play, and these guys didn't. So sacks killed him again there. Sacks, lack of championships, lack of Pro Bowls. Let me just point out, Clark, this is a Michigan man I'm writing about. Showing my unbiased side. Wow. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Wow. Sold it right there. End of conversation. <laughs> that, that alone should get him in. Holy yeah, that's right. <laughs> what, what do you think he's is, a baseball player. Michigan's lapping the field in this World Series. What, what do you think is the critical missing number, though, Goose? If you, if you had to focus on the one, is it the sacks? Would it have been different if he was uh, playing on a, a Lombardi Trophy winning team? Uh, which one I think you? if he had gone to seven Pro Bowls, He'd have been in discussion. Might even have a bust. Yeah, look, Jack Jack Ham did it as a, as a pure outside linebacker. Derek Brooks did it as a pure outside linebacker. There's a spot for those guys, but you got to be special. And to be special, you have to have those multi, multi, multi Pro Bowl appearances. And he never went to one. He didn't go to a single Pro Bowl in his career. How, how do you? How do these guys vote him? Because I expect they vote him all decade with no Pro Bowls. He may be the only all decade player in history that never went to a Pro Bowl. 
Well, and that's why I said it's like the Riley situation. I realized he wasn't the all-decade player, but gosh almighty, goes 65 career interceptions, and he did go to a Pro Bowl. Yet he was a four-time All-Pro. I mean, that's, that's just yeah, bizarre. And he can't get discussed. He can't. Never been a finalist. Yeah, well, thanks, Goose, man. You know, I'll be honest with you. I was going to ask you about Anderson versus Carl Banks, but then I realized one went to Michigan State, and it wasn't John Anderson. Oops, he went to the other school, so I won't ask. Well, we're not going to Michigan State, but we are going to a break, and we're going now. So stay where you are. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We addressed the Hall's expanded centennial class in the first hour, but we didn't hear about it from someone outside this circle of Hall of Fame voters. Though he's really not. He's a regular contributor to the show and to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. And that's NFL historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal. And John, the minute I heard about the Centennial class, I'll be honest with you. I thought of you. So I'm going to ask you what I wanted to ask you last week. What do you think of the idea? You like it? You have reservations? What do you think? Well, I like it. I think it needs to be done. There are a few reservations. I just hope that it doesn't turn into something where the younger voters and and partisan voters that are really strongly attached to their team try to use it to you know kind of stuff the the recent guys in that they think are are excellent players but might lack the credentials. I mean, if they put the older guys in first, uh, at least with a priority, the guys that made five and six all pros, then I'm totally happy with it. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the idea. I think it will be seniors, and I don't want to be um, too cynical about this, but some of the younger voters will go, who, huh, what? <laughs> so I think it is going to be that. Um, how many would you like to see inducted? Well, I've heard rumors, I don't know what's true, between 17 and 20. I mean, I'd be yeah, happy with correct. that number, especially if they're going to set aside three or four slots for older coaches and owners. I've heard the name uh, Buddy Parker, with uh, who has a, a few titles, somebody like that, or maybe a Clark Shaughnessy. But if they narrow it down to 17 or 20, and a few of them are contributor coach types, if they put in anywhere between, say, a dozen to 15 players, I would be happy. Uh, John, if you were uh, in position to be voting on this, um, who would be your first choice and, and why? Is there one player who sticks out to you? Well, I can think of five guys to, that if they don't get in would be a huge disappointment to me. Uh, Duke Slater would be one. He's somebody who was making all-league teams as an African-American tackle in the 1920s when, when we, we know that racism abounded. So I think that would be one. Vern Llewellyn was perhaps the best punter before before uh, Sammy Baugh and was a four or five time All Pro with the Packers. Lobby Dillwig. One of my favorites would be Ox Emerson, who was a guard with the Lions. And I've seen film of him, maybe only sixteen or twenty minutes of it, but he played on those teams that were rushing for two thousand four hundred or two thousand six hundred yards. 
as an offense, records that didn't get broken until the 1972 Dolphins broke them. And they also had a year, he was a defender, of course, everybody played both ways. And he was somebody who was a defender on a team that had seven shutouts. I, I don't know if it was in a row, but seven shutouts out of ten games. So I think Ox Emerson stands out. And then Al Wistert, who George Allen said was one of the first great pass rushers, but really was known as the guy who was the best blocker for Steve Van Buren, who retired as the all-time leading rusher. So those are five that I think are must-get-ins. So uh, of those guys, uh, would you rank, uh, how would you sort of rank them? You know, in my case, I think, to me, Slater's the the number one guy that I want to see get in. Well, I wouldn't have any problem with Slater being one, but I would go probably, I I just can't separate them because they were all all pros five or six times except Slater, and the reason Slater wasn't was probably because of bigotry. So I have no problem with Slater being first and then tying all the others for second. But those are the guys that were pre-World War II that really, in my opinion, and in the opinion of other researchers, got left behind. Hey, John, according to the Goose Man, there are seven first-team all-decade choices that are not in Canton. Would you expect to see all seven included? Or would you want to see them included? Yeah, I would like to see them included. Uh, I, I can't remember who all seven of them are. I think there's actually more than that. Uh, maybe he was just going by first team. Yes, yeah, he was first team. Yep. Uh, yeah, first yeah. Team. And I think there is a big difference between first and second team. Some of those second teamers got one vote, <laughs> so I, I don't know if that would necessarily be the same as getting twenty out of twenty-eight votes, for example. But I think all, yeah, I think all of those are very qualified. I know two of them are cowboys. Right, Uh, Drew Drew Pearson and Cliff Harris. Um, Some of them might be a little bit, you know, lesser. I'm not a big fan of like a Boyd Dowler in 1960. The 60s, they didn't have first and second teams, so everybody's considered a first team. I don't believe he is a Hall of Famer, although he was a fine, fine player. So I would expect to see most of them, but not all of them. What do you say, John? To you know, some people look at the. uh, the 1940s all-decade team, very there's, that's the group where there's really the fewest number of Hall of Famers to come out of that all-decade team. And uh, the argument amongst some historically is that uh, uh, voters looked upon that era as a sort of weakened era of football because so many of the best players were in the military, uh, and, and therefore those guys uh, sort of got looked down upon by the voters of that day. Uh, do you put any credence in that, and do you think there's any validity to that argument? Well, I, I must apologize. I could hardly hear you. Clark, could you just kind of give me the substance of that? Yeah, the 1940s. Um, it seems to be a decade that's overlooked, really, because of okay. uh, the war. And some people say, well, it's watered down because of that. And so um, some of those all-decade choices, we don't really take that seriously. Um, do you take gotcha. it seriously? And do you think it, that they've been unfairly um, sort of ostracized because of um, that opinion or that, that uh, notion that, that, well, it's a watered-down era? Well, I think it is fair to say that it was, and but I also think there are worthy players from that era who who haven't gotten a serious look. So one of them is we already mentioned uh, Al Wistert, who was had all the credentials you could expect. Uh, Riley Snake Matheson was a five or six time All Pro guard. I've seen him play. He did seem to stand out, but I don't know that the '40s has any more missing players from the Hall of Fame, if you will, than the 30s or the 20s or, or the 60s or 70s. So 
I think all things are, are probably fairly accurate. It was a bit watered down. A lot of great players who may have been in the Hall of Fame didn't come back and, and have a great career. One of them was Al Blazas. Only played three years. He was the best player I ever saw in that era, regardless of uh, position other than Sammy Baugh. Guy was a dominant player. He looks like J.J. Watt on film. But then again, there are a couple players, but no more, no more than any other era. Yeah, the guy I want to see from that era is Max Speedy. I mean, in Wister, but I just don't understand why Max Speedy's on the Hall of Fame, to be honest with you. I think he must have been blackballed by Paul Brown, but I just don't get it. Um, let me ask you also, would you include coaches and contributors in your list? And if so, who? Yeah, I would say uh, uh, Buddy Parker deserves a serious look. I mean, here's a coach who won three titles, or, or two titles, and then he moved on and did a really good job, was known as an innovator. He had a defense where he was playing a, uh, where they had what was called a, a port and a star, which was what we would call uh, strong safety, free safety. And this was before they had strong safeties and free safeties. And maybe a Clark Shaughnessy. That's somebody who would be the equivalent of a Sid Gilman now or a Don Coriel. He really was a guy who was an innovator of innovators and then was a, not a great head coach, but as a contributor. And I wouldn't mind seeing one or two officials get in, to be honest with you. It might be a, a good year for, for somebody like that. Although, as you guys know, there is a contributors category. Uh, Art McNally could get in in that someday, but it seems like owners are squeezing everybody out there. Right. <laughs> yes, actually, it does. You're right. Uh, um, how about uh, quarterback? Uh, is there a quarterback that jumps out to you that you think uh, should sort of be part of this class? No, there really isn't. I think the quarterbacks get the most scrutiny and criticism, but they also get the most glory. And everybody has looked at these guys, and it's just a matter on if you're going to really look at what they did, and how do you separate all the guys that are all about the same, who have maybe one MVP, maybe won one title, or didn't get to a title. Guys like Joe Theismann, or Roman Gabriel, or John Brody, I just don't think this is the kind of class where you would want to put them in when you've got guys like Slater and Wistert and maybe a Drew Pearson and other guys that are seven-time All-Pros or Pro Bowlers five times and that kind of thing that were consistently good, not just having two or three good years, but a whole career. So, no, I don't see any quarterbacks that, that are really getting shafted. What about, uh, what about Cecil Isbell, who was only all-decade quarterback, not in the Hall of Fame? And if you look at Don Hudson's career, uh, his best years came when Cecil Isbell was throwing the ball to him. Well, I wouldn't mind if they put him in. I just don't think he has the same kind of credentials as the other five that I mentioned from that era. He had a pretty short career, and he had a a lot of different things that were kind of negatives about him, but he had a great receiver that kind of bailed him out a lot. So, sure, put him in, but just let's make sure that... Vern Llewellyn and Lobby Dilwig, two other Packers that were four or five-time All-Pros and won championships as well, get in as well. Hey, John, early in this program we had Ken Riley on here, the, the Bengals defensive back. He's fifth on the all-time interceptions list, and the four guys above him are in the Hall of Fame, and the two Hall of Fame-eligible guys below him are in the Hall of Fame, yet he's not. Where do you stand on Ken Riley? Well, I'm mixed on him, but frankly, I don't think he's somebody who's who's getting a terrible, you know, he's not getting ripped off in any way, because the, the, the way I look at it, and of course, you guys are voters, and you know things certainly that I wouldn't, 
in terms of what you put in your priorities, but statistics to me are only one part of it. The all pros and pro bowls and the honors are another part of it. And also taking a look at what the, their opponents said about them. I don't think you're going to find a lot of receivers that said, Ken Riley was the best I faced in my career. He didn't make any pro bowls. He was second team all pro just a couple of times. So he did get a lot of picks. But how come when it came to pro bowl balloting time, he didn't make it? How come when the writers who saw him play, and they saw guys like Lester Hayes play, and these other great, uh, Roger Worley play, and Mel Blunt, how come those guys got the all-pro nods? And then when I look at his grades from Pro Scout Inc., I don't think he was ever what was considered, what they consider a blue player. I think he had a couple that were low-red, but mostly he was... Uh, a second-tier player, according to the, the the protocols that they have, the scouting and the looks that they take. John, as always, thanks so much for the time, and we'll be hearing from you again soon, I guarantee it. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you for the time. Thanks, John. You got it. That was NFL historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal. Up next, we remember Pat Bowen. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as most of you know, Denver Broncos owner Pat Bowen passed away last week at the age of 75. Now, Pat was one of the most influential, responsible, and successful owners in NFL history, and he will be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame this August. Now, we've had John Elway, Joe Ellis, and Dick Ebersol on this program to talk about Pat, but we haven't had a member of the Broncos community who may have known him best. He certainly knew him really, really well, and that's former PR director and longtime, and I mean longtime, a friend of ours, Jim Sacamano. Sacco, thanks for joining us. It's been way, way too long. Clark and Ron, thank you very much for having me on. Let me just say from the start, you are among the guys that I respect the most in my lengthy career, which now spans to, uh, well, it's in the fifth decade, and uh, you're among the guys that I've always respected the most. That's only because I married Leslie Hammond. That's why you respected me. <laughs> that's the only reason I respect you, too, Clark. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, um, Jim, uh, the first question. I, I know um, there was a, uh, a big deal this week at the stadium on Tuesday, um, and I yeah. think you were there. Um, could, you, could you tell us about it and um, what you saw, well, what happened, how many people were there? Uh, what was it like to be there? Well, there were... Yeah, there were thousands of people, certainly 5,000, maybe six, seven, eight, I don't know. And they had it uh, worked up like a procession situation, you know, like where people go through the serpentine lines and everything. Yeah. But at the beginning of the line, Joe Ellis, the team president, shook the hand of and greeted every fan. At the end of the line, the Boland children were there, and they interacted with and greeted everybody. And the only reason each of them didn't speak to everybody is just because different conversations were happening simultaneously. But there was enormous emotion. The fans, uh, the, the team did a fantastic job. They had all kinds of memorabilia and mementos from past life uh, uh, on display, you know, game balls, Super Bowl trophies, AFC championship trophies, etc. And they had walls of flowers that were displayed. If you picture Rose Bowl, Rose Bowl floats turned sideways. That would give you an idea of the flower yeah. displays, three or four of those that they had, just staggering. And the team, I think the team really did it like a labor of love. And I really believe, I really believe this, 
that if you were to, if I were to say to you, what spirit, uh, the spirit of who drives the New York Yankees, you would say George Steinbrenner, even though he's been right. dead for several years. I think the same thing is true of Pat Bolin. Every single thing that happens here, everything is, how would Pat do it? What kind of class would Pat want? How would he handle this? What would he do? And that is, is the driving force. And it was really represented uh, yesterday and just a lot of love by Bronco fans. And I mean, Peyton Manning was there. John Elway was there. It was a who's who kind of a thing, gentlemen. Well, Taco, because of that, let me ask you this. How emotional was it for you personally? I mean, when you looked at that memorabilia and you saw the people there, what did you think? I mean, what, what came to mind? It was emotional for me to talk to the Bolin children uh, because no matter, no matter how big a figure he was, he was dad to them. You know, besides everything else, he was dad. And when dad's gone, that's a heck of a deal. It was emotional for me. I found when he passed away, I got a lot of requests for radio shows and TV shows. And frankly, the first day, I didn't feel up to it. What can I say? Sometimes I say, what else can I say? You know, what can I do? But he was a heck of a guy. He was the most regular guy in the world. You know, it usually you guys would both appreciate this. When he did media interviews, I did not sit there with him. Uh, I put him with the guy, and I said, you know what? He's the owner. He can say any darn thing he wants, and if we have to fix it after, we'll fix it after. But I did not believe in holding his hand. And um, from the first, I picked him up. Literally, when he bought the team, I picked him up. And uh, he's in the back seat, and I said, oh, Mr. Bolin, uh, I've got some talking points here for you. And he says, what are talking points? And I said, well, maybe things the media might ask you and ways you might answer. Said, ah, I don't care to see them. They can ask me anything they want, and I'll answer the best I can. And I thought, boy, this might really, really be good. And it was really, really great for almost four decades. Uh, Jim, when, when you think of Pat, uh, do you have a favorite story, you know, a favorite incident, something that, that uh, when his name comes up, it's the first thing that pops into your head? So many, but you know, one night, uh, one of those dark and stormy nights, I'm uh, working on the media guide, and he's in his office like he was always in late, and he was always in, and uh, I go do his bio. So I go over to see him, and I say, yeah, you know, Pat, anything special you want in your bio? And as you can imagine, true to form, he said, nah, nothing special. You do whatever you want with that. And he said, Jim, I just want us to be number one in everything. Well, not only did he give me the line that I led with, led his bio with, but it's a line that's on the wall of Dove Valley. It's a huge sign. I want us to be number one in everything, Pat Bolin. And um, that's how he was. You know, that's, that's how he was. And, uh, and yet, um, so many things. I was talking to a friend of mine. I won't mention the team. No use doing that or the other owner. But I said, Pat this or Pat that. And my counterpart said, you call your owner a Pat? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, if I ever called Mr. Such-and-Such by his first name, I almost said it, <laughs> if I ever did that, I'd immediately be fired from the team. And I thought, wow, well, I'm sorry about that, but Pat is Pat. He, he's, he's great, guys. And, uh, you know, he's great. He'd meet the press. He was so good. There were times, I remember one time, I, like I said, I did not stand with him. He's meeting the press. I left. I left. I, I always used the big boy theory. You know what I mean? And um, he comes by my office. He says, Jim, I did it again. And I yeah. said, oh, what did you do? And he said, well, you know that game we're playing in Tokyo next year? And uh, I, I said, yeah, I told him we're playing. 
and I, it was like November. I said, oh, they're going to announce that at the league meetings in April. Oh, well, I got on the line, called Greg Aiello, VP of PR for the league. I said, hey, Greg. And I told him, you know, that um, you might want to just be aware that this has been announced today by our owner. You got a beef, have somebody call the owner. <laughs> that must have been the 1995 yeah, you know, game against the 49ers because I covered the Broncos and the but, 49ers in Tokyo. Yeah, but, but, you know, I mean, that was, um, that was Pat. Yep. But he said, yeah, I yeah. did it again. I said, what did you do? What did you do? And he just told me, and then I said, uh. And he shook his, he, he shrugged his shoulders and walked away. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, he was fantastic. And, uh, you know, um, and, I, and I really believe his spirit will drive, it does drive this team. I don't see any change of that anytime in the, in the future here. Fans love him. They knew how real he was. The press knew how candid he was. You know, everybody was, like I said, uh, Yesterday, that thing went, um, I mean, six, seven hours. It was supposed to go from uh, 10 to 3, but at 4.30, it was still going on because of people who'd, who'd come in the door, but they were still in line. Well, well um, you know, when you said he wanted to be first in everything, you guys were first in everything with Super Bowl 32. That's when you beat Green Bay in San Diego. And I remember afterwards, of course, everyone does, when he stood up there and said, this one's for John and held the Lombardi Trophy alo- aloft. Yeah. I- I'm wondering... Jim, how, how gratifying was that for him? First, as an owner who had missed in three previous Super Bowl tries, but second, as the guy who finally got there with a quarterback who was 0 for 3, but to whom he was so close. Yeah, he's so close. It was fantastic. It meant so much to John. That was a shock to John. John has admitted there was a shock to him when Pat said it. But it was it was a great moment, and uh, you know, it was the most gratifying moment. In fact, next year, next year at our uh, the following year at our PR meetings, Joe Brown uh, began them by saying, "This one's for Sacco, meaning me." <laughs> and uh, I've been there a long time. That was very cool. You know, people don't realize this. This is a good one. People know who Simeon Rice was, right? Good ball player sure. of the NFL. Well, we wanted to sign him, but we didn't have any more money. We didn't have any more money. We were out. So Pat went to the bank and took out a loan by himself and used his money to sign Simeon Rice. <laughs> Did you have that, to that's him the to truth. The he, he used his, he used his, no, he, he went on his own, but he, he went to the bank on his own and used his money to sign a player when we were out. You know, it didn't work out with the guy uh, just because he was kind of at the end of the trail. But, um, but Pat Boland has, um, has defined the organization. Also, the father of Sunday Night Football, and I, I love that stat, but I also love the first owner and the only one, the first one in NFL history, I think Robert Kraft will beat this, or tie it, rather. You can't beat it. But first owner in NFL history to uh, have 300 wins in his first 30 years of ownership. That is a heck of a stat, and good luck m- matching it. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, right. Sure. Well, you know, Jim, obviously the team won a lot uh, during the time that, uh, that he was running it. Uh, great success, great quarterback, all those sort of things. But but even that necessarily doesn't make an owner kind of beloved by by the people. You know, they love the no. players, they love the coaches, they love you, of course, as the PR guy. Uh, but what is it, or what was it, uh, that created this love affair between? He, you know, he always puts. This sounds so corny, but he put the players, the fans, and the community first. And he always said the right thing to do is to give, and then shut up about it. Just like that line from the Bible, don't pat yourself on the back and say, I give this money or that money. There were a number of times when I went to him 
And I said, uh, this thing happened to the community. And they're wondering if you would maybe make a contribution to help make this better. And he said, here's the deal. I'll pay for the whole thing. But no publicity. No publicity. And he meant no publicity. You don't tell anybody. But I'll take care of the whole thing. Just call him and that's that. One of these things happened, was an ongoing thing. And each year I'd go to him and I'd say, you know, last year you paid for that thing. He said, oh, is that time again? Tell him, same deal. I'll pay for the whole deal. No publicity. And he said, I'm not kidding about that. Don't you tell them that uh, to buy some billboard or do some ad or something. And uh, that was the most, that was actually the most stern I had to be to people was to tell them not to publicize something that Pat had done. Yep. Uh, yeah, that, okay. that's, that, that's fascinating because, as you know, a lot of these owners are kind of the opposite of that, if you know what I mean. You know, once, once upon a time, I, uh, I get to a city and it's Tuesday. We got a, a Sunday game. That team had just been on Monday Night Football. Again, no sense mentioning the owner. He's passed away now. But uh, my PR compatriot says, boy, oh, last night was a big night for me on Monday Night Football. I got six shots of the owner's box. Boy, that was a big deal. I got six shots of the owner's box. Boy, that was big. Pat used to tell me to tell those people, look, I got guests in my box. I go down to the field as a two-minute warning or four minutes. They can take any pictures, say anything they want. But in my box... If my guests want to scratch their rear ends or whatever the heck else they may be doing, it's private. I don't want any shots in the box. No shots in the box. They could do whatever the heck they want with me when I get on the field. And that was actually pretty good because, as you guys can imagine, it puts a lot of pressure on a PR guy if he needs to call these powerful producers who, who are busy trying to put a game together and say, please take a picture of my owner in his box. You know, right. and no offense yeah. to all the ones who have the great pictures, but Pat right. said, no, 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 no. When I'm on the field, do what the heck you want. In my box, they can scratch. Actually, I don't, you know, I think the term he used um, was akin to rear end. They can scratch their rear ends uh, <laughs> yeah. without worrying about being seen in my box. He was an earthy man. Hey, Jim, I've got a quick question. We've got about 30 seconds left. The Hall's rule on gold jackets and rings, only for the living, and yet Pat's the first guy who was uh, voted in and yet can't make it the induction. You want that changed? Yeah, I don't know what they'll do. Denver fans want that changed. Yes, because I think, you know, like the the jacket, nobody's wearing that jacket generally. I think this gives the Seau family or Pat's family or whatever, they can frame that jacket and they've got the ring. And let's face it, these rings are beautiful, and they're keepsake rings. They get passed along. Yes, I'd like to see that change. No offense to the Hall, doing the best they can with everything. But, uh, yeah, I'd like to see that change. Terrific. Sacco, thanks so much for the time, and you know what? Thanks for the memories. One of these days, I promise you, I'll see you at a Yankees game. Thanks again, Jim. Okay, Clark. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, Jim. That was former Denver PR director Jim Sacamano. Up next is the Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I can see the finish line up ahead, so Robert, sound the alarm. That's the Two Minute Drill. Yes, it's the Two Minute Drill again, so guys, let's get going. Duke Johnson, Duke Snyder, Duke University, or Daisy Duke? The Duke of Earl, Gene Chandler. Oh, good one. Duke Snyder's the only Hall of Famer on that list. Why did Todd McShay take himself out of the running for a job with the Jets? You never get fired for predicting a bad chick, only for making one. Because he knew he wasn't going to get the job. You can't fire me, I quit! (laughs) Hey, Josh McCown just retired. What's his legacy? Like Joe Namath, Joe Montana, and Brett Favre before him, he's a friend of the show. Yeah. 
he got his day on Talk of Fame Network. Nothing better than that. XFL, X-Men, or X-Rated? Sort of, sort of King Arthur, Excalibur. Ooh, like that. Exacto, the knife that can slice open anything. <laughs> the Buffalo Bills make all their training camp practices open to the public. I know I'd have been there. But the Eagles, they make only one open. Why? Well, when you go 19 years without winning a division title, you have no secrets to hide. <laughs> uh, one has tickets left to sell, and the other one doesn't. Exactly. Speaking of the Bills, they're offering a chance for one couple to be married at halftime of the September 29th game with New England. Any suggestions? Roy Hobbs and Iris Gaines. Ooh, like it. <laughs> I have no suggestions for a couple, but I have a suggestion for the couple. Don't do it. Why take a beating <laughs> on your first day of marriage? <laughs> Big Little Lies refers to A, an HBO program, B, NFL contract details, or C, John Gruden's next press conference. Or wait, or D, our show. E, the flight gate. Ooh, ouch. Good yeah, I like it. C, <laughs> we traded Khalil Mack? We did? First I heard of it. The Redskins are looking for a sponsor for the new stadium. You have one? The Maryland Lottery, because the odds of winning are very low. <laughs> Jeep and call it Cherokee Stadium. <laughs> Place you'd least like want to be today. A, the Jets front office. B, the Mets front office. C, the space between Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur. Or D, the Dominican Republic. D, the managerial seat of the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, D, the Dominican Republican. Nobody's getting shot up in those other three places. That's the end of the game. <laughs> or getting sick. Hey, maybe you'd like to hear this or any podcast. You know what? Just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. Thanks for listening.